it's really hard to get us to go away. And I know there's a lot of fear out there right now. 12 and a half, 15% of the arts companies are going to close because of this pandemic. And I'm afraid. But what I see from my community right now is we're not letting each other fail. And smaller is better than gone. But we support each other right now in a way that I've never seen the artistic directors in the city supporting each other. And we genuinely aren't going to allow it to go away. At least here, at least now. Identities, act one. At rise, the stage is empty. Adam Mann wanders on, looking about. He is dressed in skin-tight silver lame and a wide black belt. Gunshots off stage. A woman screams. <coughs> Jesse, his face covered by a mask, drags Chris on stage, one arm around her waist, the other brandishing a gun. Nobody come any closer. Adam Mann walks towards them. Chris struggles. Let me go. I don't think she wants you to do that. Stop right there or I'll shoot. Maybe you should let her go. I mean it. Adam Mann reaches toward Jesse. Jesse fires at Adam Mann. Adam Mann holds up his hand and makes the vaporizing sound. The bullets have no effect. Hey, Piers, it's Vince Ventura, artistic director for 12 Piers Theater. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. I suppose we had it coming to us because, in fact, we weren't as innocent as we meant to be. We were fed up with the way in which everything that came over this new magic box, the radio, was being swallowed. Anything that came through that new machine was believed. All right, enough of this nerd talk. Yeah, right. Let's get into some podcasting here. <laughs> you can tell I'm all geared up with these answers. You know, I'm like ready to go. That's great. This, this, is, this is great. That's great. You know, one of the things I love about podcasting is just, you know, no rules, right? So you can, yeah. you make the road as you walk it. Um, it helps to have a little bit of a plan, but, um, you know, if you go off the rails, you go off the rails. And sometimes that's the best stuff. I agree. Hey, welcome to this very special episode of the TSVP Radio Theater Podcast. Today, oh, you know what, Kaylee, all of our episodes are special. Did you notice that? I did. They're all special <laughs> for some reason. So today we're going to talk about some very interesting voice acting, radio theater, radio drama, however you want to put that, going on right here in Pittsburgh. Vince Ventura joins us from 12 Piers Theater, where he's been the artistic director but Vince is also the executive director of the Modern Myths podcast. And this is where the whole radio theater comes in, I think, especially. And I'm really excited about this. So now here's where things get interesting, I think. Unlike a lot of radio theater efforts that tend to recreate productions, you know, from the golden age of radio, like think of Fibber McGee and Molly, The Shadow, or Raymond Chandler's, you know, Philip Marlowe. That's one of my favorite detective shows. I love these old shows. You like these old shows, Vince? Oh, my goodness. I've... Uh... I got into them after we started podcasting, but boy, are they fulfilling to listen to. They, they really not only take me back a little bit in terms of um, an era gone by, but I think they're really entertaining. Yeah, they, they certainly are. They, they certainly, um, I think in that era, they, they wrote the book on how to do this theater of the mind business. And uh, I, I, th I think it's a lost art. Uh, we'll get into this later on. We'll talk about some of the technical stuff, but I think it's a lost art. And I think a lot of us are, are sort of... Uh, 
finding our way back through a lot of these techniques and, and things like that. But, um, but instead of looking at, you know, towards the past here, right, Vince, you and the Modern Myths podcast, you know, you're taking radio drama to the realm of the contemporary, maybe even the futuristic. Do you have any futuristic oh. stuff going on? Not right this minute, but we may have some post-apocalyptic stuff coming up. Uh, Maybe bad timing with that one, but yeah. (laughs) That's right. Well, that's contemporary, right? Yeah. We're also joined today by Katie George, who's co-hosting this episode. Katie's an accomplished local theater actor and director, and we're currently collaborating on our third radio theater production, which is also a contemporary play called... A very COVID Christmas. That's right. <laughs> Written by you and Devin Marshall and Kurt Stratinger. Correct. Yeah, it's very exciting. Lots of talent there. So we're in, uh, currently in the production of that. So thanks for joining me, Kaylee, and uh, picking up some of the slack here. <laughs> thanks for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> so let's talk about Vince for a bit. Now, Vince, you've been with 12 Pierce Theater for a long time. Yeah, I'm actually the uh, one of the co-founders. So we... Um, we got our act together in 2010. We launched the company formally in 2011, and we've been growing ever since. Now, where does that name come from, 12 Pierce? That's a frequently asked question, um, and it has sort of a, a <laughs> I don't want to say pretentious answer because we were really into it when we thought of it, um, but it, it's a deep cut, as it were. Um, so we're, we're really centered on myth and cultural identity, and... Um, we also, when we were we were young and scrappy, I was 27 when, when I founded the company, and my wife was 20. Um, so, yeah, there's an age difference there. Oh, now you're old, old fogies. No. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, at this point, yeah. Um, <laughs> but we, we thought we were going to fight the good fight for independent theater and do the plays that other people wouldn't touch in Pittsburgh. I think we've stayed pretty true to that um, vision, And the mission was to explore myth and cultural identity, hence the Modern Myths podcast name. So we found the name from the Song of Roland, which is a French ballad. uh, And Roland was one of the 12 peers, the um, paladin of Charlemagne, one of the knights that fought the good fight next to to Charlemagne. So super deep cut, super Western myth. And I want to just give that a little space because... In the years past, we realized that the myth and cultural identity that we're interested in exploring is, yes, our own. I'm a, I'm a white man. I'm a cis white man. But also everyone else's myth and cultural identity as well. And so opening that door, opening that conversation and inviting more people into our space, this little area that we've carved out and this little bit of privilege that I hold, inviting as many people into that to explore their myth and their cultural identity. And I think we're better for it because there are stories out there that we would have never dreamed to tell. Now, you started this podcast in January of 2016, and you ran yeah. through 16 and through 17, you took a little bit of a hiatus, and now you're back, right? Yeah. You're back, with, and you are on your second show of your reemergence, if you will, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. We started in 2016. You know, we were, we were planning our season, and we said, we have the money to do two plays, and that's a season. I mean, technically, it's a season. Um But we want to do more and we want to be able to support good work and stay true to our vision, stay true to our mission. And how do we do that with the budget that we have? And so we started thinking about that and we started thinking about how many people would come to our shows if they were able to. How many people maybe can't get to the theater or don't have access to the theater in terms of uh, financial access. Um, that, That season that we launched the Modern Myths podcast, every ticket 
was name your own price or pay what you can. Oh, wow. So that was part of a giant push to expand the access to the theater, accessibility in the theater, and also to help artists. I started as an actor many moons ago. The gray hairs in my beard were not there when I started. And, you know, we wanted to see playwrights. We wanted to see actors. We wanted to see directors get the opportunity to work on 13 plays throughout the course of a year. And um, we did record all 13. We did not get to release all 13. Just, you know, budgets happen and editors are hard to find and uh, even harder to employ because they're really talented and really expensive. And, um, you know, uh, and here we are. We find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic where no one can get to the theater, where access to the theater is almost universally shut down. And we thought, boy, we have some of these things ready to go. Let's get back out in front of it and uh, and really put our put our efforts behind digital work in the in the right way, in a measured and concise and thoughtful way. So you went from stage to I mean, you still still have plans to do stage work, but you moved also into the realm of the digital with the absolutely pod, with the podcast, right? Yeah, we were running two trains uh, simultaneously, so to speak. Yeah, and and I don't think that's going to be something that we choose to um, put behind us when this is all over. Um, the company's grown, our capacity has grown, our network has grown, our budgets have grown. And while we'll still probably do two shows in the summer um, at the University of Pittsburgh, we'll actually, uh, this is, I don't know if this is a big scoop, but it's not widely known. We're going to be moving into the Henry Heyman Theater next season. Should have been this season. You know, things happen. Is that the one in the basement of the cathedral? That's where we were. We were in the studio, which is now the Richard E. Rao Studio Theater. And just shout out to Richard Rao, who's done so much for the arts over so many years in Pittsburgh. But um, the, the Richard E. Rao Studio Theater, we were there since 2016, since the year the podcast launched. And um, we'll be moving into the uh, Henry Heyman, which is in the Stephen Foster Memorial Theater building. So under the Charity Randall, right next door, which is uh, a little bit bigger and a little bit more... Um, accessible. There's some direct elevator access. It seems to be a theme that's coming up with me today. Uh, and I didn't plan that, but it's something that's important to us. So, um, and I, I'm really excited about the, um, the scale of the work that we'll be able to do in there seems to be a little larger and that's exciting. So is it fair to say that, um, you had this idea to do theater that is a little punchier, a little edgier, um, <laughs> For sure. Okay. I think that's a, I, you know, I said subversive, and our first board president was like, maybe don't say subversive. And I was like, no, no, no. There, there's plenty of good things to subvert. There's plenty of bad things that are the norm. Right. Let's let's be a little edgy. Oh, you beatnik radicals. Yeah, right. Let's get protested a little bit in the good way. <laughs> right. <laughs> Katie, I wanted to ask you, because you know, you're know you in the theater world, and you and I actually have had this conversation about about doing radio theater in sort of the same light, you know, something just serious, like really serious and contemporary and taking on uh, these modern issues that we're all struggling with. Do you, what is your sense about the scene of theater and the need for this sort of, uh, you know, iconoclastic kind of uh, drama? Yeah. So I, it's so funny that you had mentioned, you know, uh, when you were 27 fighting the good fight, I'm 25 now. Uh, and you're speaking a lot to what <laughs> I'm living through right now. And, you know, some of my questions I have are like, you know, how do you, you know, continue to do independent uh, and like new playwrights and new shows and uh, things like that? Because my experience has been, at least in some of the theaters in the area, is if it doesn't have name recognition, if it doesn't, you know, fit within our, you know, our patrons likes or wants, we're not going to do it. And so it's really exciting for me to see theater in Pittsburgh that's more representative of how I see the theater world as a whole. 
when you look around our audiences, you see people who are 24 to 44, and you see people who are 44 to 74, and you see, you know, a, a wide variety of people come to see 12 Pierce Theater's plays. And I assume, without having demographic data to support it, that they listen to our plays too. And that's the kind of theater I want to be a part of. You know, when I was when I was 25, I was thinking about this. I was kicking it around. I, I got my first directing job, and I was like, boy, I like this. Who's going to hire a 25-year-old director who's directed a few readings and just immediately felt at home directing these readings? I mean, I forgot. Like, when I was a, a child, I, I was directing my friends, and I I'd lost this part of myself that, like, reemerged in a very honest and truthful way when I got my first chance to direct something. Uh, who's going to let me direct and handle their budget? So I said, I would. <laughs> and my wife was like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. And then many moons and, you know, credit repair and everything else later, um, <laughs> you know, here we are. But if I had to give advice to anybody who's listening, who has the bug, who has the drive to say something, there's two pieces of advice I always give. And the first comes from David Wayne from MTV's The State, which you may be too young to remember. It was a sketch comedy show on MTV in the 90s. I reached out to them at AOL.com and said, I want to be a director. What do I do? And David Wayne told me to learn math, learn English, learn science, learn history, so that when somebody gives me a chance to say something, I have something to say. And I took that to heart. And the other thing that I would tell people is you have to make your own opportunities. If it's, if it's literally a couple of microphones and paying for server space, or, you know, paying for hosting, that is an opportunity. If it's getting your friends together and doing something in a park gorilla style and don't, if you get arrested, I didn't advise you to do that or anything, <laughs> um, but make your own opportunities and get people to see it. <laughs> Beg, borrow, drag them there, get them to see your work <laughs> because that's how that's how people get hired. You know, your, your friends are the ones who hire you, the community you build, the networking you do. It's I'm really 100% dependent on the people who choose to work with me. And that's why when COVID started to happen, we said our top three priorities are artist safety, audience safety, and can I make the nut? Can I, at quarter capacity, half capacity, actually pay for and make make sure the company's stable. But the financial part of it was number three. And artist safety is number one because you don't have a play. You don't have a musical. You don't have a radio drama. If you don't have people who are willing to believe you, you know, a, a leader without followers is just taking a walk. You know, you have to be responsible for your people. Let's talk a little bit about how radio theater lends itself to some of these challenges and you know particularly what comes to my mind is you know there's a lot of low overhead here in the radio theater work i mean you know some microphones in a, in a bare space a room right and boom you've got a production right how how well that's put together that's a different question but you can certainly have a production and with a platform of podcasting like modern myths uh, a simple host you can publish it on your website and boom and you have literally worldwide reach I was telling Katie the other day, you know, we, we did the shadow in October and I think Katie, what I say, uh, eight something countries. Yeah. It's crazy. Tunisia. Uh, who's in Tunisia listening to us, but somebody <laughs> is there. I mean, it's mind blowing, you know, so radio theater and, and cu couple of that with podcasting and, the, and what it really takes to put this together. Uh, man, I think it's a, it's a powerful kind of project. And that's the biggest problem that I see with theater at a local level as an art form. I mean, I was doing the research. Uh, I think that the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council said there's something like 156 performing arts companies in this area. 
Oh my gosh. So your, your arts dollars are stretched. Um, your spaces are limited. It is so competitive to get space. And it's very expensive. That's one of the largest line items we have as a company is our space rental. And, and Pitt is very kind to us. So, you know, if you can take away two big barriers to entry, which is market size and space acquisition, and then expand your market globally, I, I don't understand. I'm not judging anyone, but I don't understand why more people aren't getting involved in this or hadn't been. Because when we, when we started, people were like, what are you? I don't understand how that works. Why are you doing this? And, you know, of course, I've talked about my motivations here. And I still stand behind it. I think it was. I think it was the right thing. Maybe not at the right time. Maybe a little early, but um, definitely something that can really give you national or international credibility, especially as a small organization. Sure, and you know, with podcasting in general, which has been taking off, you know, for a decade, if not more, in a very serious way, and you know that because you know the big corporations are into podcasting now. We're back to a culture of oral appreciation. Right, we're back to a, a a place where people are are used to listening to things. You know, I think there was a time when no, that no TV was the realm or visual arts was the realm. You know, we didn't have radio; that went by the wayside. So now with podcasting, people have the earbuds on all the time, and they're listening in their cars to these you know these oral productions. And I think it's boy, the time is just right to sort of introduce or re-energize, you know, folks with um, with with this craft, you know, this art form. Hundred um, percent. Where people are desperate for content right now. I mean, I can I look at Netflix and I'm like, uh, I haven't watched everything, but <laughs> I've watched all the good things. <laughs> I said to my wife the other day, I was like, I feel like I've seen every video on YouTube. I know I haven't, like, but I feel like I have. <laughs> right. Right. And let's talk about the, some of the challenges that go along with this sort of re, uh, production stuff, the recording. So you guys, you guys record, uh, you sent me some photographs of, of the, and you're around a table. Absolutely. Right? So you're basically, you're basically, you're doing a table read. So what are some of the challenges that you, you've discovered? I'm really proud of this one. I'm really glad you asked. This is going to be me indulging myself. I'm sorry. Um, it, it was about 80 hours of research to figure out how to do this setup. We didn't want, uh, you know, individual microphones. There's, you know, table noise involved, paper shuffling, and we wanted to minimize that. Um, we wanted people to be able to look at each other. And we were borrowing space. Again, space, com it comes down to space. We didn't have a giant budget for this. We couldn't afford to rent a recording studio or rent... Um, rent anything. Our board, our board president actually got us that conference room. And then I had gotten us conference rooms and things like that. So they weren't even all recorded in the same location. So what I did, and if this is helpful to any of your listeners who have the urge to, to start up something uh, of their own, I recorded from a laptop with a USB extender, like a USB dock. And we used the Logitech H390 headset microphones. Now where we ran into issues is you can only have one microphone in on a computer for the most part, unless you're running it through an interface. And we weren't. We were running all USB mics into a computer. So we had to find what's called an ASIO, A-S-I-O codec, which is like a professional codec that lets you have multiple ins. We used a software called Reaper, which is a virtual mixer, and slapped uh, this ASIO codec on my computer and plugged in our USB mics. And we, we ran. We ran with it. So, yeah, I was very proud of that amount of research. And trust me, we had bought and returned a number of microphones <laughs> and a number of mixers to Amazon trying to find the right balance. And that seemed like it. 
If I had to go back and do over again, I would say don't record in stereo, record in mono for voice, and make sure you don't have too much echo. Is this the uh, technique you've, the setup you've had all along? Yeah, after our second episode. Our, our first episode we recorded with sort of like a game streamer, dual audio splitter thing that kind of was a little janky and it was putting it all into one track, all the voices into one track. And that was hard to edit. Um, we recorded our second episode like that and it crashed in the middle of the recording. So we had to re-record the second episode and that's when the 80 hours sort of, I was like, I need a couple weeks, you guys. And we came up with this a fairly elegant solution. And what it, what it spits out is six individual tracks that can be individually edited. Some of the plays, because of Echo, I actually had to like reconstruct every single word needed to be cleaned. It took me, you know, sometimes 20 to 40 hours to edit these episodes. And then, you know, advances in technology and hiring professional people who know what they're doing and can put audio filters and, and put um, gates and things like that. I'm so not an editor, forgive me. But noise gates, that's it. Put noise gates in and, and reduce some of the, the nonsense that I was editing and cleaning by hand, which, you know, that's why we're back. Uh, because people, their generosity, willing to work, willingness to work with us and some, you know, funding. Right. I want to talk, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, Katie, feel free to jump sure. in here as, you know, director to director, uh, what it's like to direct people, you know, on a microphone through the, you know, with voice acting. But I, I do want to make a comment that you, so I listen to, you know, your episodes and so I listen to a lot of things in different contexts, you know, on the smartphone and on my radio by my bedside and in the car and, you know, through my speakers here and, you know, these headphones and well, all different kinds of experiences you get, depending on how you mix these things together. But I noticed that your productions, they really have this radio quality. And I was like, well, well why is that? What's going on there? And so one of the things that I do as an audio engineer is I, I rip stuff off the internet all the time, put it into my system, and I analyze it. And I realize that, you know, part of the way that you recorded it, you know, it's um, it has a mid-rangey emphasis on it, which is, in some contexts, and this is my own stuff too, you listen to it and it's like, oh, other contexts, it's beautiful. Like the smartphone, like I listened to the episode, your latest episode, and I said, man, that is like a built-in radio ambiance to that. Like, you know, like an old-time radio ambiance, I think, which I, I think it's, it's kind of cool, coupled with this sort of contemporary content that you have. And I said, man, this really works. And I didn't really expect that. But the more I thought about it and listened to it and, you know, analyzed it, I said, wow, this really works. So I, I actually, with the later episodes that have just started airing again, have some AI mastering software. And I, I run it through and I'm like, do I like this? Do I like, I like what we're getting back from the editor uh, Michael Shaheen is his name. He he does great work, and I mean, honestly, I can't I can't master it better myself. I think some of it's the the H three ninety microphone. They're decent microphones, but again, probably a little mid rangey. And then the earlier episodes, it's probably my ear just being accustomed as a, as a very early millennial, um, <laughs> being accustomed to hearing sound from a boombox and from a smartphone uh, you know when i was growing up we didn't have a, a like a, a sick old school stereo that sits on the floor you know i had a, a cd player with two detachable speakers and you know, it's probably my ear is trained for that mid-range <laughs> yeah well you know mid-range equals intelligibility and if there's anything that old-time radio 
puts forth, and that is intelligibility. I mean, it's all recorded in mono, of course, but they use these massive ribbon mics for the most part that were just punchy. And I mean, it, you know, and then these larger rooms, and so they spoke right into. I mean, it's just it's just a combination of stuff that just lends itself to intelligibility, and that's that's kind of a very important thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're talking about audio, right? People, that people can understand dialogue, for example, and and all the nuances. I I directed um. For South Park Theater here, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, a play called Vintage Hitchcock, which was early Hitchcock radio plays. And I insisted that we do Foley sound effects. And everybody's like, you're a crazy person. And I'm like, why, why would we not? This is, <laughs> this is what it needs. Um, but the most challenging part of that was all of the dialects. There were so many different dialects and accents. We had some non-native English speaking characters as well. And keeping that intelligible with a very little physical action, keeping the the rate of speech, the the pace of the show high, it's one of the most challenging things I've directed. Yeah, it, it can be challenging. I've mentioned this to, to Katie a number of times that unless you're doing studio work where you're working to the microphone, if there's any sort of audience that you have there, you have to split that difference between either working with the audience and the microphone or working with the audience and and your fellow actors and the microphone. And that's that's a real challenge. You know, I've done about 12 radio productions and, and every one of them, I've noticed this struggle with actors to, to really, you know, this is your focus here because you don't get this right, you don't get this right. Um, but it's just a struggle, and I get maybe that part of that is just with um, working with stage actors who come to the microphone and trying to learn this. But I just find that really fascinating, sort of watch this and sort of work with with folks. But Kaylee, what I know you, you and Vince uh, could probably have a good conversation <laughs> about what it's like to you know watch these actors read these lines, and that's a whole other thing too. Going from reading voice to spoken voice. Oh my goodness, you you directors yeah. have a chore. <laughs> I, I think I had a really interesting introduction to this because it was a, a staged live radio show. So I, I was really trying to make sure to accommodate both. And I don't know how many times I gave the line to an actor. You know, I can really see you going through that with your eyes and with your body language, but I don't hear a difference. <laughs> so being able to close your ears and hear it is just as important. Absolutely. And conversely, when you put an actor in front of a microphone, sometimes they just shut down physically, like, uh, you know, or or become, they feel very observed in a way that is it's a different vulnerability whenever you're yes. this close to something. Uh, I've seen actors just go completely like limp <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm making sound effects to describe what I'm doing physically, the exact opposite of that. They go completely, you know, tense, rigid. It, it really does come down, Kevin, to splitting the difference. It's, it's telling the story physically, telling the story vocally, and finding a way to be um, interesting enough to watch and interesting enough to listen to at the same time. For each of you, what are your techniques to get actors to move from that reading voice to a mic voice? You know, for me, I'm still a budding director and all these things. I'm, I'm still a, a wee baby. So I, I don't feel like I, I have much of an authority to speak on this, but in my experience. No, you know, you're selling yourself way short because I've watched you and I would have given up a long time ago, but you keep pushing these actors and, you know, it's, yeah. I'm just you know, you know overly confident. <laughs> That's all you need sometimes. Yeah. I found that to be true. And you know, what, what I found is just asking questions. That's that's my go-to as a director is why have you chosen this or why are you doing it this way? Because I'm not a big fan of like the dictatorial, like do it like this, stand here, go over there. Like I, I trust the actors that I work with. I, I mean, they're incredibly talented and smart and, you know, being like, hey, you know, I, I really like this. Can we try it like this? That seems to be the best way to just get something different. Because you can always go back and try something else, but 
instead of telling actors, oh, I need you to be louder or just be more articulate. You could say those things a hundred times to your blue in the face, but saying, uh, try to say it like you're your mom very quietly whispering, yelling at you in a church pew during a service is a little bit different than just like say it better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the rehearsal room is my favorite part. Like, I, of course, we have to open like financially we have to open. Um, it, it would lose its urgency if we didn't open. But being in the rehearsal room is my favorite part. And I think it's a collaborative uh, art form, 100%. If you don't have trust, you don't have vulnerability. If you don't have vulnerability, you don't have anything interesting to watch. I, I, I love your asking questions to the actors. Uh, in fact, oftentimes I'll say, can you show it to me three different ways? Whatever comes to mind, don't judge yourself. If you do it like a chicken, do it like a chicken. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't expose this. This is my secret sauce. <laughs> oh, do so. Do it. Do it. Let's hear it. I, I accept the first six or so ideas that an actor has. No questions asked. Because if it's wrong, they'll feel that it's wrong before I have to tell them that it's wrong. And me not stepping on that creative impulse that they have at the outset, in table work, in blocking, in our first stumble throughs, me letting them try and letting them play builds trust between us. It builds my credibility as somebody who cares about them. But moreover, it, it allows them the creative flexibility and freedom to, I don't know, dive in, dive in without a net, you know? Also, you know, it, it comes down to communication. The hardest part, I think, for loosening an actor up in front of a microphone stand facing directly out to an audience for a radio play was the fact that they don't have that eye contact and allowing them to play with the angle of their of their body, you know, the angle of their feet, the, the ability to see the other person even while making, um, still being in line with the microphone, visualization, seeing that other person in your mind's eye, even if you're not facing them, that just finding a way to connect because this is, it's all a conversation. It's a conversation between me and the actors, but most importantly, it's a, a, a an alive conversation night to night between the two performers. Yeah, one thing I found really helpful when we could do things in person was finding a lot of fun in the choreography of who's standing at what microphone when. And like, I miss that a lot. Preach. (laughs) That was was part of the the fun, you know, visually, but also fun for the actors of like, okay, when I'm here, I'm this person, you know, I'll flip a hat. um, Now I'm this character and, uh, you know, missing out on the fun of like the I'm doing this right now and I have to go here. And what I really enjoyed was when we did It's a Wonderful Life, we did it like in the 40s. So when the actors weren't, you know, speaking, they were still acting as their 1940s counterparts. That's something I found was very useful because there was no reason for vintage Hitchcock to take place like as a, as a, a story. It was just a radio uh, station doing this thing, this this presentation of Hitchcock films. So what we did was we added a framing device and we gave them all sort of characters that they were playing. And so they had their like meta character and it's actually the playwright revised his next play. He actually incorporated something along these lines with a sort of preamble uh, where they have meta characters and then they are these performers. So they're playing a performer playing roles. It was, you know, a little bit like an onion, but uh, once we all got our heads around it, it worked really well. Katie, that's what you did with The Wonderful Life. Yeah. The characters were like, the moment they appeared in that studio, they were on. Yeah. No, granted, that wasn't my idea. That was Joe Landry, the playwright, when they originally did it. Joe Landry wrote Vintage I was Hitchcock. If it was. Yeah. Yep. Oh, there um, you yeah. go. Yeah. Well, no, he did such a thread. brilliant job writing that in such an accessible way for a modern audience. And 
I mean, honestly, for us, it was just so much fun to play with the relationships. So the relationships of them, even when they're acting, they still have their, you know, their actor relationships. And it was, oh, that was a blast. And it's all nonverbal because I, and I, I didn't get a chance to read his other plays when I directed Vintage Hitchcock. So I didn't know until maybe like the third week of rehearsal, fourth week of rehearsal, that he'd done that for the future ones. It was just something that, again, it was my response to the script. How do I make this story work for an audience visually uh, as well as audibly? But um, I, it was all nonverbal. We had no lines for those characters. So we had to tell a lot of story in a very short amount of time with no words and uh, it was a challenge i i'm, I'm i think it went i think it went well I'll, I'll, you know i'm a i'm a biased judge <laughs> this this raises a, a particular conundrum and i i didn't realize this until i went to one of the midnight radio productions and it just hit me like ooh this you cannot record this and put this out as an audio only piece it wasn't meant to be it shouldn't be. I mean, because they, they so mixed together the voice work with the stage acting. That that's what it was. It was a thing unto itself, right? And I've noticed this, that there, there is, you know, going back to this idea of splitting the difference, there's this, you know, there's this zone where if it's too theatrical in terms of physicality, you can't hear it and vice versa, right? So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm always looking for like, well, where's that line in all this and stuff? And I'm not a theater guy. I don't do any directing, but I'm always listening as I do my productions is this working? Is this working? Is this working? And often it it, uh, it does, and often it doesn't. So I just find it a fascinating sort of dynamic in all this. And I think this is a really fascinating dynamic because if we're going to grab modern audiences and bring them into this realm, I think we have to have both worlds to some degree. It has to be dramatic. It has to be compelling. It has to be high stakes. And a lot of the old radio dramas had that. It has to be contemporary and speak to us right now. That's... Uh, I'm going to go on a small tangent, I apologize, but that's why we called it modern myths. You know, oftentimes as Americans, cultural identity is something that we may not have universally. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, what, what is my cultural heritage being like a fourth or fifth generation American? I mean, I, th we don't have a guiding myth, you know? The closest thing we have to Greek myth in our society is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, uh, you can walk into any of those movies. You know who Captain America is. You don't need a recap. You just go. And and so how can we bring that to audiences right now and make it accessible and make it something that is instructive and gives you some sort of, I don't know, moral guidance, not being um, didactic or like overly educational. But I think you should leave the theater thinking about some big questions. And how can we make it entertaining at the same time? One thing I thought was really interesting about the Victoria show was it was definitely a theater piece, which was so interesting because of the way that it was like set up as monologues. Right. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't need for sound effects. There wasn't need for underscoring. It was compelling and just hearing these stories. I thought that was really interesting because normally when we think of radio plays, like even as I was writing one, I was like, okay, so how do I make this so that there's like, you know, a reason to have a cool sound effect. Like what, how can I uh, make listening to this worth it? And what it came down to, it was what's most important is the story. And I just thought it was so interesting that it like, it sounded like theater. It didn't sound like what I think of as a radio play. That's one of my most proud moments as, um, you know, the executive producer of the modern myths podcast. When we set out uh, a part of our vision here, not only give myth, give, give, good stories, give compelling 
thought-provoking stories to our audience, make it accessible for people, but also the playwright aspect of this. Because it's hard for it's hard to get me to read your play, and I'm one of the most approachable dudes you're going to meet in this business. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm take all comers. You want a meeting? Let's do it. Um, but it's hard to get me to read your play. I wanted to give these playwrights a tool for submission that would be compelling and be listened to and or read and get them work. And 18 Victoria, actually, the director of the podcast, took it to West Liberty University and did a full production. So I've actually got to see that play on stage. And it, it was amazing. It, it really, it was, it was very compelling. And it's just a, I mean, it's a, we all have messed up families in some way or another. And I think we can all really relate to that. And now was the time to release it with an impending apocalypse right oh, yeah. around the corner. It was too real. I was like, I was at work and I was like, oh no, like I was just so engrossed. And I was like, oh, the world's going to end in three weeks. I'm just going to make some French fries and like, <laughs> You know, just really like it, it was so uh, it was almost a little too real at times. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, um, and, and everyone on that on that show did a great job. That was actually one of the ones we didn't film in the same location as the others, which um, I noticed I can hear a difference, but I, I don't think it's a bad thing. But yeah, one of my most proud moments is that 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 play had a full production and the playwright is just an excellent human being. Vince, are you from Pittsburgh? Born and raised, although I my, you know, I don't sound like it all the time, but I got a good Yinzer accent. I can I can throw yeah, that on right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you go to to theater school to train it out of you, and then you move back here, and it <laughs> exactly, and <laughs> all comes I, oh, back. I'll talk about theater, Katie. You're degreed, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I went to New York, and well, New York State, not city. Um, I went to Niagara <laughs> University, and. They were like, learn a standard American accent. I was like, okay. Oh, right. And I've moved back here the last couple of years since graduating. And I'm like, the other day I said, did you catch that? And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, it's creeping back in. <laughs> we we use the the accent ironically in this household. We love it. Uh, my, I tease my mom for it occasionally. Uh, she'd be less than happy that I'm mentioning that right now. But um, we, we use it. I, I, I embrace it. You know, even with Mythburg, our other digital program, we have a... Uh, it's a, a ghost hunting group uh, that is like the investigating local myths and legends. And it's a big part of our mission statement. But the ghost hunting group is called Yinzer Scared. I love that. I'm very fascinated by that. Yeah. You, uh, do you have any formal training? Yeah, I uh, I graduated from Point Park University um, with a BA in don't tell anybody musical theater. Although I've not done a musical in I don't know. I'd say I'd say since 2015. 14. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Um, and I, I, I just recently completed my executive MBA from a, a wonderful school called Quantic School of Business and Technology, um, which a lot of people are like, why would you go for your master's in business? And I was like, look, I've been pressure tested by audiences for nine years. Like, I know, I know my craft. I have my undergraduate in theater and where we can do the most good for the most number of people is if I learn how to run this company better. Yeah, that's a very important part to all this, because if you can't put the pieces parts together and make the gears go, you know, yeah. chances of, of it actually happening are, are slim. There will always be basement productions, you know what I mean, if you don't ramp it up a bit. And it's it's called show business. A lot of people don't like that part of it, but um, if I'm being honest with you, I find it incredibly fascinating and much more specific and unfortunately a little bit more mathematically inclined than I thought it would be. Um, but yeah, no, I'm still alive. We made it through that. That was great. <laughs> so your current production is Identities by Catherine Dubois. Mm -hmm. What's in the future? What, what's coming down the pike? 
Oh, we have uh, a number of different projects and a number of different, I would say, episodes of those projects. So we have one play called End Times, which is uh, coming up. We have a play that's a sort of surrealistic, modern Savannah kind of play, which I'm really excited about hearing how that turns out. What does that mean? So it it's just a very surrealistic, not post-apocalyptic, but almost like new society forming in, in this sort of desolate land. I it, It's honestly, I was in the room when they recorded it. I, I, I listened to it and I, it is still a little bit hard for me to define. Uh, it's just a wild play. And, oh, so you um, have productions in the can, as they uh-huh, say? Yeah, oh. absolutely. And we have another one called Like Drowning, which is um, a really interesting exploration of a relationship um, over the course of decades with two two people playing each role. So a younger couple and an older couple playing the same characters and how that relationship progresses. It's a very moving story as well. Are you making the, the calls on, on what productions that you want to get into or is it a collaborative effort? Honestly, I wish I could. We had, um, uh, but I can't. It's just too massive. Um, we did an open call nationally for script submissions and I think we had like over 300 scripts. Wow. So we had a team of like 32 readers who all submitted their top four and then... Um, Another team after that, and then, uh, you know, the finalists. And, we, you know, I made the uh, – me and my literary team, I should say. I don't want to sell them out because Matt Henderson, who's a, a you know, staff member here, my wife, Sarah Ventura, um, the, uh, without them, Marcus Savage, giving a shout-out to Marcus Savage, who doesn't need to help us but helps so much. Uh, the, these people are – what keep this company going. I get out there in front of people and I talk and, you know, I might have the, uh, hey, let's do this wild program. And everybody's like, how are we going to do that? And I'm like, I don't know, guys, it's going to be fun though. Um, but without them, none of this happens. So it was a team of 30, 30 volunteer readers. And I think they all got like, I don't know, 10 scripts. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we had, a, a we, we selected 13. Um, we have some selected for the next round of recordings, although I don't know, that we'll do that in person, even if we can. I think that this, what we're doing right now, talking uh, across the distance is something exciting to me. It's a little bit lower commitment for the actors. They're a little bit more relaxed in their own home. And, um, you know, I don't have to lug around eight microphones <laughs> into a conference room and worry about echo. It's a little bit more controlled. Yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's a real chore. I want to ask you a question and I want to ask the same question of Kaylee. What is on your bucket list, uh, your burning desire project, uh, whether something that's actually there or, or an idea that you have that you'd like to put into the radio drama world? We see digital theater as a sister form, sister art form to theater. It's not quite film, right? Because I'm not, as the director, showing you what you should see. When we present Mythburg, we can see everything, you know, like like it's a stage performance. You can track any character you want. And it's definitely missing the proximity, right? I'm not in the room with you, and I miss you, and I want to be in the room with you, and that's the magical aspect of it. We see it as a sister art form, and we see audio as a valid sister art form to digital theater with audio and visual. So we're developing a project right now that kind of capitalizes on the the strengths of the digital uh, world, so to speak. And what I mean by that is you don't have necessarily the interactivity in theater that you have online or digitally. I can't affect a performance. I can. I can clap. I can laugh. I can uh, hopefully not boo and hopefully not get up and walk out. And those are the limited ways that we can interact as audience members. Although 
some people say if you see a 12 peer show, don't sit in the first two rows. You may be asked to participate because we do a lot of that. But it's limited. So how can we take that to the theater uh, online? And what we're trying to develop is sort of a choose-your-own-adventure audio piece with some animations and some immersive visual visuals, but um, keeping it as an audio uh, narrative but giving some interactivity and control to the audience who's listening. Now, it's really early. It may not happen. And it's something that I think uh, would be a, a dream bucket list if we could pull it off because I think it'd be really cool. Hmm. Kaylee, how about you? That's such a good question. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, for me, like, honestly, uh, like, it, it's so funny that you mentioned, you know, when you were 27, like, you really wanted to uh, see new things. For me, I, I love giving a platform for artists, um, specifically local artists. And what I've really enjoyed about working on this piece, A COVID Christmas Coming Up, is that I was able to give local actors and local playwrights a chance to do that. That's really important to me because we just have such a, a plethora of talent here in Pittsburgh. And I, I feel like sometimes we're so stuck in the rut of producing what has name recognition to then go to the same three actors that we always use. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, bucket list would be like having a popular show amongst, you know, Pittsburgh people who aren't necessarily theater people. That's one thing that always strikes me is like, I, I hate doing art for artists. I mean, I love it, but I hate it <laughs> as an artist. I love that art, but as like a person, I'm like, I, we're not reaching the people we want to reach. So one thing that's exciting to me and one thing I, I'd really like to do on my bucket list is just expand the audience who's, you know, accessing this, who is, whether it be because of financial things or because there's a stigma towards theater in some communities, or there's a stigma towards performing. And so how can we start conversations and and share ideas with people who normally wouldn't walk into the theater? So that's one thing that's really exciting for me and kind of fuels my fire. <laughs> that's really hard to do. I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not, I'm, oh, that's certainly not me shooting you down, but it's, it's something that we all need to be responsible for as artists. If you want the privilege of performing, if you want the privilege of directing, you have to consider for whom am I making this, right? Like, who is this for and why and how do I reach them? Because theaters, I mean, we have a very insider, insider group, right? It's hard to break in. Think about how much money you spent on your degree just to look at, to come to an audition and look like you belong there. I mean, and as an insider in this tightly bound insider group, we don't necessarily like change. We don't like... We don't necessarily welcome new faces. It's my job as artistic director to figure out how to open those doors, find the doors that are relevant to people who are not already coming to my organization and open them and say, yes, it's safe here. And yes, you're welcome here. And yes, this is for you. And it's relevant to you. And that's something that I don't necessarily have all the answers for. Um, Often it's, it's at odds with the business end. Those ideas can sometimes really butt heads in terms of, okay, we need to get people in the seats, but we want to reach people who nor don't normally get in here. But those are the people who pay to be here. <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful I have a board of directors. I'm grateful that we're a nonprofit organization. You know, people like the Pittsburgh Foundation and the Opportunity Fund and Heinz Small Arts Initiative and those people who can help you cover those losses in some cases. People like my board who on Dave Giving, you know, might toss me some money I wasn't expecting from them and still be okay with me when I come back and ask for a little bit more. 
And the people who see what I'm trying to do, and I, I would take the rest of this episode if I thank them all, who've invested in me personally as an artist, who've invested in 12 peers. Those are the people who sacrifice. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm, I'm putting myself on that list too because I put way more money than I'd care to admit into this company. But those are the people who sacrifice so that this art form doesn't die with us. So that this art form doesn't become one person paying $100 million for a ticket to a Broadway show, sitting alone in an audience, you know what I mean? As prices rise and expenses rise and you know, weekly budgets for, you know, weekly production budgets for Broadway shows gets higher, who is that for, you know? It's a, it's a problem we have to solve. I'm a huge fan of Orson Welles for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I've discovered recently about him is this attitude, and it's really what you are expressing now. You know, he would sign off a lot of his shows obediently yours. And I heard him explain that one time, what he meant by that. And he, he said, if it weren't for the audience, if it weren't for the public who welcomes the actors, his productions, and makes it all possible, uh, it, they would be nowhere. So from the earliest days of the, you know, the Mercury Theater, you know, he adopted this sort of attitude, like, I am your servant, if you will. And he would literally sign off on many of the different radio shows that he had as uh, obediently yours at the end. And it's, it's a great tagline, but it, I think it goes to the sentiment that you're expressing here, Vince, that you know, we owe a lot to our audience. Yeah. Time is the one resource you can't replace, right? You can always get more money. And the one thing you can't ever replace is time. So if I'm asking you to sit with me in a dark room, go to church, as it were, right, where our behavior changes, we get all quiet, we go to this big room <laughs> together. If I'm asking you to come to church with me, I better make it worth your time. You know, it should be insightful, enlightening, challenging, and above everything else, entertaining. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always say entertain, educate, and inspire. If you can do those three, if you can bang those three <laughs> cylinders, you've got an engine that's that's purring there. Absolutely. And I don't want people to think that I'm out here trying to teach you a lesson or there's some hidden message in my work. I've explored a number of different topics, and oftentimes they're the topics that are bugging me. Next season, our plays have to do with wealth inequality and gender inequality. And uh, those are some things that are on my mind right now and were supposed to be on my mind in 2020. <laughs> I think the most self-serving thing I did is the year I turned 30, we did Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a musical <laughs> by the, the, um, the, the guy who wrote Rent, Jonathan Larson, about turning 30. So I worked through a lot of my issues <laughs> in front of people. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason when despots would take over societies, among the first to be killed or eliminated, however you want to put that, were the artists, right? I mean, go back to antiquity, right? You can see that that the artists were the first to be silenced. You know, we hear today about, oh, the outspoken Hollywood elites and the celebrities and stuff like that. But I, but I think we've really forgotten that artists truly have a, a unique voice and capacity to hold that mirror up to us and remind us of who we are. And so that, that because we don't value that often, we've diminished the role of artists. And I think that we should recapture that. I 100% agree. It's hard to silence us, though, you know? <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> we just listen, never shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the first part of it. Um, but Peter Brook talks about uh, in, in The Open Space, I believe that's the name of it, The Empty Space, excuse me, the other, his other book is The Open Door. In The Empty Space, he talks about theater in bombed-out attics in Dresden during World War II, you know? It's really hard to get us to go away. And I know there's a lot of fear out there right now. I, I mean, the data suggests that 
12 and a half, 15 percent of the arts companies are going to close because of this pandemic. And I'm afraid. But what I see from my community right now is we're not letting each other fail. And smaller is better than gone. We support each other right now in a way that I've never seen the artistic directors in the city supporting each other. And we genuinely aren't going to allow it to go away, at least here, at least now, you know. And I think Broadway will be back, maybe not bigger, maybe maybe a little smaller and in, in, in a good way, you know. Maybe we don't need $700 tickets to see Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> you know, maybe we don't need $800 tickets to Hamilton. Although Hamilton was great, don't get me wrong, loved it. Who is it for? The people who need to see that show the most are probably not the people who can shell out that kind of money for a ticket. Yeah, there's. I think there's a... Um... I think we should welcome this, a rebirth, a rejuvenation, a remolting of of um, the old ways and moving into the new ways. And maybe this is a good way to sort of wrap up the podcast here. You know, when I saw you guys, I found out about you guys on the line. I saw that you weren't doing the old radio classics and the old radio you know, catalog of, of things that you were, as I said in the beginning of this, you know, you were focused on contemporary works and contemporary themes and expressions and stuff. And that really, really got me thinking about, you know, the capacity of radio theater. I mean, here we are in 2020. Why are we doing 1938 radio shows, right? I mean, you know, I mean, they're great. They're great. But I think there, there's a point where you have to say, come on, let's, let's wrap our arms around our times and capture the voices and the stories of our times so that we can fulfill that artist's role of holding that mirror back up to us and say, this is who you are, right? See it, listen, right? This is who you are. We have a guiding principle when we're programming here, and it's, we don't, we've not done anything that anybody else has ever produced in Pittsburgh. So if it's been produced here, it's probably not on our short list. Oh, interesting. And if there's something that has been produced here, we don't rule it out universally if we have something extremely relevant to say about it. I have some ideas for a beautiful production of Cabaret, and at this point in time, I'm not the right person to direct it uh, as a white male. And, you know, I, I, there, are, there are really great pieces of art from, from the founding of this country. I think the first play in this area was done at Fort Pitt. I think they were a, a French production of Shakespeare with the army. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong on that. Don't, don't, don't cure me if I am. I, 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 I might be getting my facts wrong, but it was before Pittsburgh was Pittsburgh. It goes back and, and you look at Shakespeare, you look at all of the classics, the Greeks, they're relevant right now. We just have to find our voice. We just have to find what we want to say. And we really, really need to create spaces for artists who are non-white, for BIPOC artists to tell their stories, because their stories are just as relevant and just as beautiful as the things that we always fall back to and defer to. And that's something that I have the responsibility for fostering going forward. And even last season in 2019, both of the plays that we produced were by playwrights of color. And we're proud of that. And we got to make, we got to do better. We got to keep it up and we got to do better. It's a conscious act. It, it certainly has to be a conscious act. Hey, Vince, where can people find 12 Peers Theatre? You can find us online at 12peers.org. That's P-E-E-R-S dot org. And you can find the Modern Myths podcast at modernmyths.12peers.org. And if you're there, shoot me an email at artistic at 12peerstheater.org, and I'd be happy to hear your thoughts on what we're up to. Katie, where can people find your latest production you can find my latest production on the TSVP website 
<laughs> I've heard of this thing, yes. Yeah, it's a pretty cool place. I highly recommend it. It's being produced through TSVP and Saltworks Theater Company, who I also recommend checking out at saltworks.org. Um, they are still currently doing live uh, live Zoom assemblies for schools. So if your school is looking for a super awesome place to uh, have an assembly through that's safe and online, you can go to saltworks.org and book that today. We'll hop on over there. Great. I want to thank you guys for being on the podcast episode today. We really appreciate the time that actors and directors and technicians can share this craft with us. I think it's as important to know about how things are being made as actually seeing them being made, because I think it gives us all a deeper appreciation uh, and understanding of what it really takes to, you know, to put this art together. And so I really appreciate your being here and uh, and sharing uh, your thoughts and your ideas and uh, introducing yourselves to the world here. I hope to have you back on. I want to carry this on. It's, it's my bucket list is to carry on this podcast uh, and, you know, to, to, to be a showcase for, you know, my own work and other people's work but also to get into these uh, these weeds a little bit, which, um, you know, you guys have to watch the nerdy talk, though. You know, we're going to alienate people. No, I welcome the nerdy talk. We're not gatekeeping. Everyone's welcome here. Please, if you have questions, email me. It's been a pleasure being with you. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.